Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 96 of the Energy Talks podcast. Now today, I'm really excited to be talking to Shannon K. O'Neill, who is the Deputy Director of Studies for the Council on Foreign Relations and the Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin America Studies, and author, and this is why I'm talking to her, author of The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. So welcome to the interview, Shannon. Thanks for having me. We are going to talk about what is one of the top uh, uh, issues that Canada and the U.S. Uh, and its allies are grappling with at the moment, which is, which is the idea of blocks, trading blocks reemerging where Asia Pacific is dominated by China, Europe is a competitor, so you have the EU, and then you have North America. And this is a fairly, we, we used to think about it like this, and then we got away from that and we started talking about globalization. And now scholars like yourself are arguing that, hang on a second, it wasn't really globalization, it was really regionalization, and we need to do things a little differently because in this new world, uh, we have some very ferocious competitors, particularly, particularly in Asia. And if we don't get this right, if we don't smarten up and and integrate our economies to a greater extent, and, and, and of course, you're thinking about, because you're located in New York and you're thinking about the American context, but Canadians need to think about this too. I mean, we for a long time, we talked about, oh my God, we're so tired of trading with the Americans. 75% of our trade goes there. You know, we, we want somebody else to buy our oil because those guys are squeezing us, you know, on every barrel we send down to Houston. Ah, we're going to build a pipeline to the West Coast so we don't have to deal with those cranky Americans all the time. <laughs> and we need to rethink that. We need, we now we need to rethink that. Uh, uh, and that's my windy way of saying welcome to the podcast and congratulations on the book. And maybe we could start with just a, an overview of your argument, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. No, happy to do that. And it does dovetail with the things that you were just talking about and sort of where it takes us. But let's just go back to where we've been. And, and in doing the research for the book and what I found was, as we look at these last 40 years, these last 40 years of globalization and you know the heyday of globalization and global supply chains forming and the like, they are not as global as we often think. Uh, and so one aspect, when you look at the data, there are only about two dozen economies that really transformed themselves over these last 40 years, where you saw trade as a percentage of GDP double or more, where they really globalized. Um, and then there are dozens of countries that did not do that. Trade stayed the same as a percentage of, the G of GDP or it declined. So they actually deglobalized from 1980. So that's one thing I found. The other thing I found is that, yes, companies went abroad and money went abroad and trade expanded dramatically, but it didn't go just anywhere. And more often than not, it didn't go to the other side of the world. In fact, it went to countries nearby. So 
it regionalized. Uh, and we see that you were just mentioning Canada's trade with the United States, 75%. That is regionalization. A very small amount of Canada's trade goes, goes far away. But when you combine that, that not that many countries participated, and when they did, uh, they went closer by, you've gotten these three big regions, and you pointed them out in your introduction there. You have Asia, you have Europe, and you have North America. And, and what I found is that, yes, North America, Canada, United States, and Mexico, they did integrate, and they are integrated, but they're far less integrated than Asia is uh, with the countries within Asia or Europe is. And that, I would say, is to those other regions' commercial strength and advantage in economic competitiveness terms, and to North America, the nations of North America's detriment. I want to tell you a little story. So uh, a couple of years ago, when uh, in, this was in 2020, when uh, the uh, leading up to the election, and uh, President Biden had put out his campaign materials. And of course, I was going through it looking at there. There's a clean energy economy uh, section in there. And I came across a couple of paragraphs where the president, and of course, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically saying, whoa, hold on a second here. Guess what I discovered? We're not number one anymore. There's this thing called, there's this country called China. It's kicking our behind when it comes to the clean energy technologies. 77% of battery metals refining and processing is takes place in China. If you want to mine lithium in the U.S., you need to get it processed in China and bring it back. That's crazy. We, why are we doing that? And, he's, and of course, he blamed it on Trump. And, and the roots of this go far, far back beyond, beyond Trump. But the thing that he said is, I pledge that if you elect me as president, that by 2030, the United States will be back in the driver's seat. And of course, you know, he's a car guy, right? So he had to use a, a car analogy. Uh, back in the driver's seat. Then this year, we have the Inflation Reduction Act. And by God, if that isn't a uh, the culmination or the expression of that, what Biden was talking about in his campaign materials, and it's like, it's literally like you do in the United States saying, hang on, we're back. We're back. We're competitive. We're going we're gonna to compete with you folks. We're not conceding anything. And um, is that a fair take on the IRA? I do think that's true. And it was preceded, uh, you know, the campaign materials are what you said they were. And then during his first year in office, Biden came in and did this uh, sort of 360 around the U.S. economy, looking at what were critical supply chains and defining which ones they saw as critical and then what were U.S. vulnerabilities. And so interestingly, and especially in the clean energy space, of the four areas that were laid out, two of them really pertain to, to clean energy. So you have semiconductors and pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals with COVID obviously came to the fore, but the other two are large capacity batteries, so electric vehicle batteries, and then a whole host of critical minerals. And many of those are green transition minerals. So you've seen this government, and frankly, I would say with bipartisan support in many of these, and that's where we get to the IRA, to the Inflation Reduction Act, which really is not about inflation and it's about the green economy. <laughs> but um, but you know, we name things the way we name things because that's how you get them through uh, you know, that 50th senator that needs to sign on to these things. Um, that's the way our politics works. You can tell me about your politics. Um, but you saw once you laid out this map or this blueprint then bills coming into place. So we have seen, for instance, the a big infrastructure bill that was passed. That's sort of a more general side. We saw a CHIPS Act. It went through various names, but basically focused on semiconductors. And the IRA is directly related to these issues, electric vehicle batteries, and making sure that the supply chain for electric vehicle batteries 
um, that there is one that touches the United States and does not touch China, uh, for that matter. Um, and then we see some other elements there too, and sort of whether it's you know mining of minerals, processing of minerals, um, but those other things, can we make sure that we're not dependent on China, who which right now is the dominant player in terms of processing, processing almost you know all of the world's capacity? I'm glad you brought up supply chains because I want to tell you another little story. So I was reading a report, and I believe this one came from the Transition Accelerator. It might have been from the Climate Institute. It will mean nothing to you, but some the Canadian policy nerds that listen to the, this podcast will will recognize those those think tanks. And the point that it made is that as we stand today, and this would have been 2021, so global supply chains are in flux. Either we're creating new supply chains for new industries that are arising, you know, like, like the electric vehicle industry, for, for example, or existing supply chains have been disrupted and they're in the process of being re-engineered, whatever that, whatever that might mean. But the point that, this, that the, the report made was that eventually these supply chains will harden. They will, the re-engineering, the disruption will be over, the re-engineering will have taken place, there will be new relationships, new suppliers, and, you know, for the for the manufacturers uh, around the world. And, and then breaking into those supply chains will be very difficult. You can, you can do it now, but in three years, in five years, in seven years, it's game over. So time is of the essence. Already our competitors, particularly, uh, like don't think of China, think of Vietnam and Malaysia and Indonesia and, and, and Korea, countries like that. They've been at this game longer than we have, at least here in Canada, I'm thinking in terms of supply chains. So the supply chains will harden. Our competitors will beat us to the punch and time is of the essence. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And, and, What's interesting is when I was doing the research for the book, I actually got to travel in 2019 to Asia and Europe and other places. And you already started to see some movement in supply chains there because of many factors. So automation was a big driver. It was no longer so important in some industries for wages to be low. Um, demographics was the other side of that. China's demographics were no longer what they were in, in terms of, of wage rates and the like. So you started to see changes there. You were starting to see, particularly coming out of Europe, uh, issues around climate change and the green transition. So trying to lower your carbon footprint and every mile further away you are, the more your carbon footprint grows. So bringing things closer by in terms of, of those adjustments and you know thinking about carbon border adjustment taxes and things that would, would add costs to, to distance. So you were already starting to see some of this. COVID, of course, threw a, threw a wrench in there and people worried about things being very far away when you know ports closed down and, and airplanes were grounded and you couldn't get stuff in and out of various places. But what really I do think is the deciding factor here for companies that are, you know, companies boards who are making decisions in terms of their profits and where to put their operations has been this geopolitical overlay. So you had all those other factors starting to move supply chains and bring some fluidity. And then this last, you know, four or five years the geopolitics, as it hardens more, as it becomes more divided between the U.S. and China, and then more recently Russia, you, you start seeing these divides. And that is where right today you see a once in a generation fluidity to supply chains, because either in some sectors, particularly high tech, you no longer can produce between the two countries. We see that with export controls on semiconductors and their equipment. You see similar measures being taken by the Chinese. So it's not just the United States. The Chinese are taking as many measures to keep data or or particular technologies out of the hands of, of those outside. 
So some places are very hard divides and you just can't produce something for both places. And then other things you're seeing that are not, you know, quite as national security oriented or high tech, um, but because of tariffs, because of regulations, because of other things, it's just no longer profitable to do it both places. So companies are trying to put capacity somewhere else. So that is the fluidity you're seeing right now. And that's one of the biggest examples there is electronics. You've seen, um, and these are just numbers for the United States. I don't have the ones for Canada, but the Chinese exports of electronics to the United States have fallen from about 42% of all exports to, to the United States or imports of, of electronics to the United States down to uh, almost uh, 30%. So it's a huge decline. Um, now, all of those supply chains pretty much have relocated to Southeast Asia, not to Canada, not to North America. Um, and this really is, but there's this moment where you're seeing a lot of fluidity. But once companies decide where to put factories, decide where to invest for capacity, find the suppliers that they need because they need the whole chain in order to produce it in a different place than they have before. Once they set up those relationships, then those are pretty sticky until you get another disruption uh, like the ones we've seen just in the last three or four years. Now, um, your uh, uh, federal uh, treasury secretary, what is Janet Yellen? She's the treasury secretary. There we go. I did get it right after all. Gosh, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have been surprised. Uh, her comments about friend shore. So strengthening the ties, the economic ties between democratic nations, uh, was picked up by our deputy prime minister and finance minister, Christopher Freeland. And it's become a major focus of, of Canadian economic policy in the last, you know, maybe three months. And it seems like the idea of friend shoring fits right in with your with your thesis. And is friend shoring becoming becoming a key component of American economic policy? And what's your take on and Canada maybe getting with the program? I do think in particular sectors this will become vital. And there, there's two, I would say there's two parallel forces happening here. One is the United States, and I think Canada probably similarly, has decided certain industries are critical to national security. And these, you need to have the pieces and parts or the components that go into semiconductors or electric vehicle batteries or you name it. You need them to be in places where you trust the governments to, in a crisis, share with you the parts and pieces that you need or, or provide you. And so you need a fringe there that you don't have surveillance, that you don't have backdoors into technology um, or, or that you have actually access. So that's one side. And there I do think the United States and Canada, you know, some of the longest friends. And even though, you know, we have our misunderstandings here and there overall, you know, fast, fast allies, let's say, right, and longtime allies and in, in all kinds of ways. So that's one aspect where I think the United States and Canada can really help each other and work together. The other side is a bit more mundane. These are not national security concerns that end up in the situation room and things like that. These are just day-to-day -day commerce. And, you know, both the United States and I would say Canada, uh, I don't want to say have struggled, but the last 30 years you have seen with the opening up of economies, with the rise of China and other places, you've seen some industries hollowed out. You've seen communities lose jobs and, and lose the dynamism that they have. And as the United States and as Canada try to regain your footing, how do you make the next 10 or 20 years look better for the manufacturing sector, for a high-end services sector, for other parts of the economy that bring good jobs and prosperity? To me, the way forward and the way to get that economic competitiveness in general commercial terms is through regionalization. And, and what has happened over these last 40 years of what we call globalization, of the rise of global supply chains, what's really happened is that 
manufacturing has spread out across numbers of countries. Uh, and that has allowed countries to have economies of scale, have specialization, um, but to be able to make you know, high quality products in very affordable ways um, and in ways that one country can't do. So today, manufacturing has become a team sport across countries. And countries that try to do it on their own, they're still playing tennis rather than playing <laughs> soccer or football. Um, they're not going to be as competitive as they were. And so there too, I see the United States and Canada, along with other countries, if they work together, they're much more likely to bring more jobs, more orders, because someone has the factory, but the other country can be the supplier and vice versa. And as we've seen all around the world, you're much more likely to buy from suppliers in countries nearby than you are from, from countries far away. And so that is where Canada, the United States, and I would add Mexico to that equation because of USMCA, because of the agreement between the three countries, that's where you can find real strength, where you can make products that can be sold not just to Canada and the United States or Mexico, but then are competitive around the world. Uh, two or three weeks ago, I was in Ottawa for a one-day conference, and I happened to hear the, uh, the keynote speaker who was uh, Professor Charles Sable from Columbia Law. And he was talk there to talk about industrial policy. But he said something that really struck me. And he said, when there's a change, uh, a, a transition, uh, these once-in-a-generational you know, changes in, in economies and technologies and so on, there's a real danger. Because if a, a country like Canada. So we depend so much on energy exports. I mean, our our oil and gas exports to the U.S. are like 100 to 120 billion dollars a year. Our next biggest are our automobiles at like 65 billion. And then that doesn't include it doesn't include elect electricity that we export. It doesn't include you know raw materials like uh, like uh, logs. You know, forestry. So we're still in a large to a large extent hewers of wood and drawers of water. And he said, in this particular transition, where we're going from energy as a commodity, commodity to is energy as a technology, energy becomes democratized. If you want, if you put in enough solar and enough wind and enough nuclear and enough this and enough that, geothermal and offshore wind and tidal, you can be energy independent. You don't need Canada. And the danger is that if Canada doesn't keep up, if it doesn't move up the value chain and it doesn't begin producing critical minerals and then refining and processing them and creating and building, having its own battery plants and on and on and on, it will become an enclave economy. And we already have, you know, we have, we've, we were, we've been arguing about the branch plant economy here in Canada since the 1960s. So we already are to some extent an enclave economy, but it could be even worse. And Canadians are so complacent. We've had prosperity for decades, man. We're the fat cats. We, we, you know, we do, we just think this is going to go on in perpetuity. Somebody, somebody is going to create jobs. I don't know who it's going to be, but eh, they've always done this. And I've literally heard cabinet ministers talk about, talk this way. Based, given that context I just gave you, if Canada doesn't get on board with regionalization, if it resists further integration in with the Americans and with the, the Mexicans and and maybe and other you know friend shoring uh, uh, democracies. Is Chuck Sable right? Is there a real danger here that if we don't get it right, we actually go backwards? 
it is a concern as industries change. Um, and, you know, just to, if, if you're feeling bad about Canada, just if misery loves company, you look at U.S. exports, particularly to China, and they're pretty much raw materials. They're soy and and other kinds of commodities as well, oil and, and, and energy as well. So it's, it's not as if Canada is the only country where you're seeing a decline in competitiveness in in the higher technological areas. So, so there is a space here. I do think that this regionalization really matters. And when I looked at the the Asian story starting in the 1960s and in its rise, because you look back in the 1960s and most Asian countries were either, well, Japan was devastated by the war, but South Korea and Taiwan, these were very poor places, much poorer than most countries in the Western hemisphere were at the time. Uh, and they have found their way to grow to very wealthy countries and very high, highly technological, technologically capable countries today. And a big part of that story was hooking into these supply chains and the the danger of global supply chains if you don't regionalize is you end up on the two edges and i would say i look a lot at latin american nations as well in many in the work that i do and south america in particular has suffered from this. They've ended up on the two ends because they have not regionalized because they're not tied to each other. So a country like Brazil it ships out commodities to China and, and the rest of the world, and then it brings back finished goods. And what has happened in Brazil is, yes, there's a lot of money that pours in as they have all sorts of natural resources that they send out into the world, much like Canada does as well. They have lots of, you know, a bounty of natural resources, energy, but also all kinds of minerals. Um, but what they have seen over this last 20 years is what economists call premature deindustrialization. So they're still a middle-income country, but they have lost their manufacturing sector or much of it. So you've seen a 10-point decline in the percentage of, of manufacturing as part of their economy um, because they're just not competitive with, with the things coming out of Asia. And we usually say coming out of China. And yes, China often is the last place of export, but it's really Asia that they're competing with, not just China. And so that is um, I don't want to say that's a cautionary tale for for Canada because there's other things that Canada has, and you know one thing Canada has done is the United States has done is also become more of a service sector economy and, and a high level service sector. And I I look at your energy sector, I look at your mining sector, and you know this is this is not your grandmother grandfather's <laughs> industry, right? The world the world right. has changed, and the technology there is just incredible. So so there are a lot of advantages that that Canada has, but. As you see automation come in, as AI comes in and quantum computing, and as so many industries transform themselves over the next decade or two, where Canada is going to fit into that, they're going to be much more likely to have the good jobs and the things that the politicians, you know, that people want, but the politicians want to take credit for if they hook into these supply chains, because more of that work will then happen in North America, rather than that invention happening on the other side of one of the oceans. Is there an opportunity here for the U.S. to reclaim Latin America as its backyard? Don't tell the Latin Americans that, right? <laughs> but, you know, you're back to the, your point of friend shoring or ally shoring. And one thing we see in the Western Hemisphere, we know, I think we don't talk enough about this in the Western Hemisphere, but the Western Hemisphere has more people living under democracy than any other part of the world. Um, and, you know, some of those democracies are middle income countries. They're not the United States and, and Canada, which have a higher standard of living. So they've managed to make democracy work. There's been some challenges here and there, and we can talk about those, but they've made democracy work even um, when things aren't easy in terms of prosperity and, and the like. So when you talk about ally shoring or friend shoring, I do think, you know, shared values in, in the sense they exist here in, in the Western hemisphere. And 
as in, at least in particular industries, I do think whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, and you know, there's there's reasons why um, it's difficult, but perhaps necessary in some ways. As we see the world divide up uh, into various blocks, or as we see certain industries, you can no longer sell particular technologies across the you know U.S.-China divide. The U.S. and Canada, by you know, need to look for who's going to be in the side that we will have larger markets because that is also right. how you bring prosperity. If you just throw up the walls around your own economy, you only have your consumers there, and you will be a higher. You'll have they will have to pay higher prices, which means that you won't see the dynamism that you might have seen uh, if you had a much larger market to go to. Yeah, it just struck me that Latin America is ripe for for being the friends that we shore with. You know? Definitely. It has huge benefits in terms of geography. It has huge benefits in terms of free trade agreements, uh, which you know provide access in, in ways that is competitive and compelling. Uh, it has a bounty of many of the things that we believe we're going to need for this next green transition and the like. I know Canada has that, but many countries throughout the region have the lithium and cobalt and copper and graphite and all these other sorts of, of minerals. And and there's a lot of capacity there to to build upon, which um, you know, I think is in with my optimistic hat as the, the way the world is going. I'm sitting here in the United States and you're sitting in Canada. I think there's a lot to be said for thinking more broadly in the Western Hemisphere. Well, speaking of thinking more broadly in the Western Hemisphere, um, I'm always impressed when I look south of the border, the extent to which the the research, the modeling, the think tanks, I mean, it's an industry. Uh, America spends a lot of a lot of its time thinking about stuff. And Canadians are a little more parochial that way. You know, we just I, I have this discussion with economic modelers all the time because I look down at your your big national labs, you know, National Renewable Energy Lab and Lawrence Livermore Lab and all of those labs. They churn out modeling like nobody's business. I mean, and so if you're a policymaker and you want to know what the impact of integration of renewables between Canada and the U.S. is, I can point you to the study. You know, it's done along with dozens of others that are sitting on the shelf that policymakers can use to design the policy and regulations that are required. We don't do that kind of thing. It was a big deal, I have to tell you, about six months ago, the Canadian government announced $5 million, Shannon, 5 million bucks. I mean, like this is, you know, the pocket, this is the coffee fund in the White House at any given time. It, but this is what we were going to now devote to, to economic modeling uh, for the Canadian economy. And we were going to set up some little organization that was going to do that. This is, and we need to think bigger than this, I guess is the point I'm, I'm, I'm getting to. We need to stop looking inward so much and start looking outward so much. It, with, to the U.S., is there a recognition in, in, in the United States, within the decision makers, within the business community, within the, the politicians, of the kinds of issues that you're bringing to the table? These are definitely the issues that are that are up for debate. And of course, different people's politics and different people's perspectives take them in, in different directions. But but one thing I would say, uh, you know, what we have seen globally over this last 10 plus years is a really a return and rise of industrial policy all around the world. And you were talking about it and, and the Canadian government talking about it. I mean, obviously the IRA and these other bills that are happening in the United States, this is industrial policy. China has been doing industrial policy, you know, since it sort of re-entered the world. Uh, and Europe is is has lots of areas where they're doing industrial policy. But 
I would say one of the most, back to your, you know, funding for these things, one of the most effective parts of U.S. industrial policy that's been there is um, basic research and development. And we there has been a long-term commitment. And yes, sometimes it's gone up and sometimes it's gone down, but there's been a long-term commitment because that is the kind of quixotic thinking and, and analysis that isn't immediately commercializable. So it's hard for Silicon Valley or others to get behind. But it are those those breakthroughs that um, that really matter for for the U.S. economy, for the world, and then later for for those companies. So, as you think about you know where should the and and some of the modeling that you're talking about comes from that, right? It's funded by the U.S. government. Though think tanks like my own think tank are not funded at all by the U.S. government, it is private donors and and foundations and other things that do it. So so you have a mix of of this stuff going on. Um, this is the big issue, right? Where I think. In the United States, we see a bipartisan consensus that some sort of industrial policy has to be there. And the question is, is where? And what I would say is, while there's a lot of noise and you're going to hear a lot more, we just had our midterm elections, so you're going to hear a lot more noise as a new, a new Congress comes in and the like. And so we'll see, you know, we'll see what that makeup will be. It's still still to be determined until, you know, a few races uh, finish. But what I do think you are seeing is a bipartisan consensus. And we've seen this in the bills that have been passed and made into law. A bipartisan consensus, one, to separate the United States from China in, in different ways, but particularly economically and commercially, and an inclination, and perhaps you might say hubris, uh, that the federal government should play a bigger role in the economy and should change the direction. So if I was a watcher from Canada, one, I would say the United States is going to do this, even with our deep polarization and divide. So, so watch what it's doing. And then there are places where I think Canada can hook into it and Canada can benefit. And I would say electric vehicle batteries is, is one of the, the first places, um, given that you have a strong automotive industry, given that you have strong elements in, in electric you know, vehicles and in, in the minerals and, and the technology and like to mine them and process them. Um, and then, you know, there'd be for your government to decide, do you want to match that? Do you want to complement that? And how do you how do you take advantage of the fact that all well, many countries around the world are going to be doing more and more of this? Well, uh, full disclosure, uh, energy uh, talks uh, listeners, uh, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about industrial policy. It's a great way to end this uh, end this uh, podcast episode. So the full disclosure is that this summer I was hired as uh, as the lead writer to, for the Alberta Federation of Labor to produce a report about the future of the Alberta energy economy. And industrial policy was the big policy tool. And one of the things we did was build on the work that Mariana uh, Moscato has done around the entrepreneurial state and then married her idea of the entrepreneurial state, the state that risks, the state that invests, the state that takes a, a return on, on that investment. We married it with the ideas, you may not know Peter Lougheed, the premier of Alberta from 71 to 86, but big proponent of the government owning pieces of the economy. So the, the oil and gas economy, bought an airline, all sorts of things. And he was, he was a conservative. That's that that there, but the, hey, 70s were a different time, right? We'd, but here's <laughs> yes, the thing. They were. <laughs> so the um, the entrepreneurial state with a uh, going back to public ownership, going back to an activist state that invested and 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 took equity and sat on a board and all of that sort of thing, and and in it there were seven missions because if you follow Mazzucato, she's big about missions, right? So seven missions, things like 
over 30 years transitioning the Alberta oil and gas industry from feeds, producing feedstock for fuels to feedstock for materials manufacturing. Building out the electricity system five to 10 times bigger, because that is basically the foundation of the of the 21st century economy. And you have to be competitive. You have to have low cost, clean, abundant electricity to compete. All of those things. And the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act was introduced literally as we were finishing up the report. Hmm. And it became a big part of that report because of exactly the reasons you and I have talking about. We got the fact what Biden was doing, what the, the administration was doing and, and Congress was doing, where it wanted to go. And we said, Alberta can play in that sandbox if it adopts this approach. If it's just willy-nilly, laissez-faire, let the market decide, you know, maybe it will, maybe it won't, probably won't. Uh, but, but if it takes this approach, it can play with, in, in, with industrial policy we can play in your industrial policy sandbox. And now, lo and behold, uh, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school because I wrote a column about this. The deputy prime minister, Christopher Freeland, has seized upon that report, is really excited about it. And now this is having some ripples in the Canadian government. So I think Canada is slowly wrapping its head around the fact that the game has changed. We might have been playing hacky sack last week, but this week we're playing professional hockey and it's elbows up and, you know, it's, it's rough in the corners, but we're prepared to do it. And we're going to come at this with, you know, our our own policy approach and our we have to get our politics in, in line and so on. But I think we're going to get there. But industrial policy seems to me, which is basically the government we're intervening to build industrial capacity, to build supply chains, to play in these different supply chains. And then all of the technology and all of the IP and all of the all of the all of that stuff that has to come into play is a incredible, incredible opportunity to attract investment and to grow the economy and to grow great jobs. And I think we're on the same wavelength. So based on all of the bibble babble that I just gave you, does that make sense? It does. I think there is a, if you can't beat them, join them. And the United States has decided to do this and, 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 you know, has seen what China has done and, and the subsidies and the other things they're doing. Europe too has, has, has industries that it has, decided it was it's going to build supply chains from top to bottom and electric vehicle batteries being one of them, but they have several others that they are also concerned of. And so partly the United States is jumping into this and it makes sense that Canada would jump in too. I would say um, to go back to my regionalization theme, because I think this is important. Um, you know, governments only have so much money and even wealthy governments like the United States or Canada only have so much money to put out there. And so as industrial policies are are put out there, I would say one um, general things that help lots of industries is a useful uh, you know metric or or place to spend money. And it sounds like one of your missions is to increase the access to electricity and I imagine clean electricity. And so that makes sense because lots of people can benefit from that and lots of companies can benefit. And the other is where can you intervene and where can you uh, you know take an equity stake or or be involved in ways that leverage other money, private money, so not just taxpayer money, um, but also make a critical difference that would have hopefully knock-on effects down the road. So, you know, electric vehicle batteries seem to be one. If you can have the technology where you are, you have the patents and the royalties, or you're involved in a supply chain that has the best, um, then lots of other companies that might not get subsidies, that might not get benefits, will also grow in, and prosper. And I think that's the, you know, where it's, it's hard to tell. But I do see um, if other countries are doing it, I think there's something where you need to do it 
as well. Um, so I'm glad that Canada's having these discussions as we are in the United States. Let me. I want to tell you another little story. This there's an 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 obscure agency that only Albertans will know about. It's called Alberta Innovates, and it's basically the research arm of the Alberta government. And they've been working since 2017 or 2018 on a process to turn bitumen into carbon fiber precursor. And they think that they will be able to produce it in mass quantities at half the price of, of current carbon fiber precursor. And they're probably at this point now, they may have a commercial process ready to go next year or the year after. And I, for an, an article that I was writing for a magazine, I interviewed uh, uh, Zoltec, uh, Zoltec, which is a car big carbon fiber manufacturer in Missouri. And, and they're kind of tied in with Alberta Innovates. They've been paying attention. And they said, if Alberta gets that process commercialized, we will put a plant in Alberta because you put the, the carbon fiber plant as close to the source of precursor as you can, right? So that you're only shipping the, the finished product. Okay, but here's where I'm going to bring this back to what you were saying. Who owns the IP for that? The government does. Alberta Innovates, which is 100% owned by the government, it owns the IP. So if you took the process that we lay out, laid out in the AFL report, where the government becomes it's the entrepreneurial state, it invests, it attracts it, it attracts private capital for joint ventures and, and other kinds of activity, and you own the IP, you have leverage. But you, you want to make leverage. sure... I would say, I would imagine you'd want to make sure you have a competitive market that you're not just giving it to one company because that also sure. allows, you need to leverage the the private market on the other side. So you have the IP, but then how do you distribute it? I mean, that's a big question for the government as well when, when this works. Fair enough. When it works, they'll grapple with it, I'm sure, or they should grapple with it. The thing that they shouldn't do, and now the Americans have done very well with this. You guys you guys spend gobs of public money. Good Lord, the federal government has spent for the last, for decades, you know, Department of Energy and NASA, and you developed all these wonderful technologies. You de-risked them. You took them to the point where, where you know, private companies, could, and then you gave it away. And then the private companies went off and made billions and, and, and the, you know, federal government said, okay, we'll give, we'll, we'll print some more, some more greenbacks and we'll go find something else and we'll do it. We'll do that. Now that worked for that economy because you had an industrial economy. So if you generated, you know, you know, whatever that I can't even think of something off, off the top of my head, if, you, if it was, say it was the electric toothbrush. Let's say the internet. Ah, there you go. <laughs> DARPA and the internet. Good, better, much better example. But if you did that and then you gave it to, and, and you, and you cranked out those kinds of innovations on like on a regular basis, well, then now, now you know why America's, you know, 10 times the size of Canada. But if Canada can, can do that, but then not just give it away, because that tends to who they're going to give it away to. And very often Canadian companies get gobbled up by American companies because they, you know, they don't have the ca access to capital. They die in the valley of death, you know, the, the, that kind of stuff. But if you've got government at the table, it doesn't have to own things 100%. But it can play at the part of the process where it can do the most good with public dollars and get a return on those dollars instead of just giving stuff away. I guess that's that's the argument. Yeah. I, I see it both ways. I see that, right. How do you do it, and especially in a place like Canada? I mean, one benefit, and this is uh, before we had tax havens where lots of our big companies went to other places, but, you know, DARPA would create things like the internet and then all of these companies would come up, you know, Netscape and AOL. And then, you know, the ones that we know today, those ones have, have, have passed by. 
um, but they were in the United States and they paid taxes and, and the, you know, tenfold the amount of money you got back from what you put in. Um, but that money that initially went in the public money was quixotic. You don't know if it's going to succeed, right? That's sort of basic research side of things. So there is that fine line. How do you make sure that these ideas blossom and people have the incentives to, to have them blossom and then they, you know, have their own personal incentives to go forward. But then how do you, as you were saying, make sure that it comes back to Canada in ways and, and there, you know, if we can get this global tax deal, I think that's actually um, will help in some of these incentives because things that are created in certain countries, then the benefits will remain in those countries as well, which today they're often not. Right. And, and we will have uh, no doubt uh, and would love to have you back on the podcast to talk about industrial policy as it evolves in both uh, you know Canada and the United States, because I think this is going to be a fascinating discussion. And we certainly here at Energy Media want to keep our fingers on it. But the uh, I think the the key thing here is is that we recognize that it's that this is what's going on. And to tie it back to your book. We need access to markets. Canada needs access to markets. Like if it's going to if it's going to produce gobs and gobs and gobs of carbon fiber, it needs access to Detroit. It needs access to Tennessee, where there are where there are auto plants that are building electric vehicles. It needs access to Mexico. Maybe it needs access to Brazil. And if we're going to build these kinds of inter interrelated, reliant, uh, integrated uh, regional economies that you're suggesting, if we're going to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Then, then Canada, that's a, a tremendous benefit to Canada if we can move ourselves up the value chain because we'll have access to more capital, we'll have access to more consumers, we'll have access to, to more industry to sell, to sell those kinds of products, to sell our carbon fiber. That's why I'm so excited about your regionalization argument is this is a moment in time. You talked about a, gen, a once in a generation. I think this is a once in a century. You know, I think back to the 1920s when the, the internal combustion engine and, you know, the rise of cars and trucks, but also tractors and combines and, and commercial delivery, it, it, it revolutionized, it transformed society and economy over 20 or 30 years. And we're there again. And we can't let that opportunity pass. And this idea of a regional strategy and, and the benefits that, acc that accrue from it, that seems to me to be the key idea that needs to be tossed in the pot with all of these other kinds of industrial policy and different things we're talking about. No, I agree with that. And I would say, while right now, China and Asia, they have a lead in many of these technologies and, and, and have moved forward, whether it's solar or it's critical minerals and the like, I think North America has a great shot at it. I really do. As I look at the mix of people and technologies and access to capital and entrepreneurship. And so if Canada, United States, Mexico, and perhaps other countries in the, in the Western Hemisphere can come together. I think they have a shot too in this next 20, 30 years as the world transforms, be one of the leading regions uh, economically, and that will bring prosperity. Uh, let's wrap up the conversation this way. And this gets back a little bit to uh, your industrial policy, I guess. Uh, I was reading the other day, and this really struck me, that while the U.S. may have fallen behind in some of these technologies, as you just mentioned, um, they also are still far and away the global leader in innovation. You know, the the science, the R the R and D, and and this was the conversation was taking place, or the argument was made in the context of the battery space. And okay, so you know, are, is should North America 
work really, really hard to get good at lithium ion batteries for electric vehicles? Well, yes, of course we should, but that's becoming an established technology in some ways. But the U.S. is innovating in other battery technologies, other energy storage technologies. And there's an opportunity to the leapfrog over lithium ion and gain the advantage back in the battery global battery space by doing that instead of competing head to head, you know, and letting China then take the, the next step. The U.S. can do that. And it seems if that if, if that lesson holds for the battery space, does it hold for other sectors? What's your take on that? I do think there is space. I mean, we're already seeing, you know, China leads on 5G, but there's other countries that are th talking about 6G and maybe you just go straight to that so you don't use the equipment that comes from Huawei or other places. Definitely in the clean energy space, the, the current batteries and storage, we haven't figured it out yet. We haven't figured out the best and there's lots of different composites and, and materials and, and science going on there in, in lots of universities, I think in some Canadian ones as well. So it's not as if uh, the race is lost. Um, even though, you know, we've seen some wholesale industries, clean energy industries like solar panels and the like decamp for, for Asia. Um, so there is a focus there. I do think that's a big part. I mean, you look at the IRA, you look at some of the, the chips bill, a lot of money, tens of billions of dollars for this research and development, exactly what you're saying. Can we leapfrog and go to the next technology, even as we try to build the base of the current technology? And, you know, I think a parallel perhaps for, for Canada is, as you were talking about, we are going to need for the next 20 years, the oil and the gas, as we've seen just in this last six months, you know, the challenges to keeping the lights on in Europe and other places, we're going to need those kinds of energies, even as we transition to other energies that are totally different and not based on, on fossil fuels at all. So there are parallel tracks here. And I think the challenge for Canada, for the United States, for Europe, for, for, for every country is how do you make sure that you do in the things that you need today, you you're able to compete and you have access to, um, you, particularly if you're worried about the national security concerns, but how do you get there for tomorrow? And that is where I think the history of the United States as we've been most successful with our industrial policy is thinking about and innovating for that tomorrow. And it's a mix of government funding as we've been talking about for the basic research and private sector funding, whether it's venture capital or private equity or others. And that marriage that often happens here in the United States, I think is, is a key to our past prosperity and, and what will come. And that's why um, furthering and raising the profile of the conversation about that, those strategies is so important. And that gets us back to your book. And uh, again, it's uh, Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. Now, where can, where can listeners find it, Shannon? You can find it on the big, uh, as we talk about the big social, uh, you know, Amazons and the like, but I bet you can also find it at your local bookstore if that's more of your speed. So, um, so please, uh, you can check it out. There's also, there's an audio version for those of you who like to walk around and listen to it. There's an audio version that comes out uh, in uh, November 15th. And so you can also find it there as well. Excellent. Well, good luck with sales and we'll look forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.